DiscerningHearts.com presents A Handmaid of the Lord The Life and Legacy of Adrienne von Speyer with Dr. Adrian Walker Dr. Walker is an editor of the journal Communio, an international Catholic review. He received his doctorate in philosophy at the Pontifical Gregorian University in Rome. He has served as a translator for the English edition of Pope Benedict XVI's Jesus of Nazareth, as well as numerous other theological works, including those of Hans Urs von Balthasar and Adrienne von Speyer. Adrienne von Speyer is a Swiss convert, mystic, wife, medical doctor, and author of over 60 books on spirituality and theology. She's inspired countless souls around the world to deepen their mission of prayer and compassion. She entered the Catholic Church under the direction of the great theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar. In the years that would follow, they would co-found the secular institute, the Community of St. John. A Handmaid of the Lord, The Life and Legacy of Adrienne von Speyer with Dr. Adrian Walker. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Adrian, thank you for joining me again. Uh, Chris, I all I can do is repeat what I've been saying all along. Thank you for inviting me. It's been uh, it's been a wonderful experience. Very grateful. We've been discussing different aspects of the mission, the writings, the works of Adrian von Speyer, and why it's significant for today. Many people would be surprised if they were to begin to read her work that what she might have been saying in the 40s and the 50s would later be reflected in the 60s in documents that we've been celebrating and the church primarily coming from Vatican II. Yeah, I think that's right, because it shows that there's a kind of convergence, if you will, if you look at the history of Catholicism in the 20th century, and you have the right sort of glasses that Mm -hmm. will enable you to sort of read what's going on properly, you'll see that without necessarily any kind of concerted action, there are people and movements that spring up and seem to sort of converge on, I would say, what was truly the heart of the Second Vatican Council. When you read the council and you get what's really going on, you see that we're dealing with something that, in a certain sense, is still new, still has to be received. That's one of the reasons why these convergent figures and movements Adrienne von Speyer and Balthasar are part of that, are so important. Still, we're not talking about sort of an interesting history of 20th century Catholicism. We're talking still about the future, (laughs) in -hmm. a way. The purpose, if I'm not mistaken, for those movements are actually reflections of the movement of the Holy Spirit to be able to bring into the world the opportunities for light the light of Christ in particular. Yeah, I I agree with that. Now, does that mean that every single thing that's happened in in 20th century Catholicism has been inspired by the Holy Spirit? Certainly not. Mm -hmm. That's why discernment is so important. That's exactly why discernment is so important. But the point is that there is something to be discerned. And insofar as there is something to be discerned, insofar as 
there is a kind of direction that you see, even amidst all of the confusion and sin and betrayal, I think we have to talk about the Holy Spirit simply because we believe that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, that the church is indefectible. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that everybody in the church is doing a good job. It doesn't mean that we have to be happy at any given time about the way things are going. It simply means that if you sort of know how to read the signs of the times, so to speak, you see that there's something going on, that a direction is taking shape. You begin to see the arrow pointing in a certain direction. And the Holy Spirit, almost by definition, has to be behind that, because that's what the church is. The church precisely is the Holy Spirit bringing sort of the gospel and and the person of Christ into and through the humanity that receives him. And the miracle is that despite the sinfulness of that humanity, nothing essential, not one iota, not one jot or tittle is lost. That has to do with what we were talking about in some of the previous episodes, you know, about Mary, because the immaculate holiness of Mary is the soul of the church. And there's an intimate connection between that and the infallibility and indefectibility of the church. So if you look at things in, with sort of the, the right theological baggage, as it were, you have to say that the movement that we discern has something to do with the, the, guiding of the, the, the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Excerpts from Man Before God by Adrian von Speyer The Church in the World The Lord, however, did not throw his word against the unbelieving world unprotected. He founded his church in the midst of the world. The church has one side open toward the world. Indeed, she herself is the open door for the world, so that the world can enter into God's Holy of Holies where the mystery of bread and wine is celebrated. Around this mystery, the church is a way of believing and hoping and loving and working, whose origin is heavenly. By entering and experiencing this mystery, man finds heaven. And God did not build his church in such a way that she would be accessible to only a few select souls who live in the purity of faith. He built her a communal, public place, right next to the street where everyone passes by and can enter in when he wishes. Outside is the denial of everything eternal. Inside is the receiving into the infinite God of everything transitory in the world. The Eucharist is the innermost event whereby the Church renews herself and makes herself known. But also, every divine service, all the remaining sacraments, our encounters with the Lord, who gives himself, who points toward his redemptive suffering, and who sends forth those who belong to him endowed with the Holy Spirit. They are called to proclaim the gospel outside and convert sinners. Thus, the church is always a place of encounter between the Lord and the sinner. 
between heavenly grace and the world. And because it is God who reveals himself in this place, this event is overwhelming and beyond all expectations. The church is nonetheless also a worldly reality, a gathering place for Christians that is visible also to others and that serves as a reminder to them. At Mass, in hearing the Word and in praying together, Christians themselves are reminded that they are called to be a reminder in the world. They have to show that they have received. They have to bring out into the open the hidden mystery that lives within them. Continually, day after day, they must actualize in visible discipleship the once-only call that they have received from the Lord. The once-only and the multiple are reciprocally related and flow into one another. Indeed, in the man he meets, the Lord sees not only a sinner who will receive absolution, but also a brother whom he receives into his communion of life. In this way, he also enabled the word that he spoke only one time on earth to be expanded into a perpetual and a living validity. His word lives because Christ lives, and because he does not cease to speak the once uttered word anew and with the same precision it had then. His words appear time-bound to us because we understand them in time. Our understanding, however, is made possible through their connection to eternity. We are struck and wounded by the Word. We could not live apart from the Word anymore even if we wanted to. We entered into the church as nuts with a hard shell. The Word broke open the shell. Now, without the shell, we are simultaneously more sensitive and less sensitive more sensitive because we recognize the traces of the word everywhere and we can no longer live in naive worldliness. Less sensitive because the allure of sin does not grab us as much anymore. It is not that it has become weaker, but that it holds less interest for us. And God's defense against sin penetrates all the way through us. At every encounter, God also gives something to remember him a gift, never something dead, but his living word. We hear this word in the church. We find it in undiminished vitality also at home whenever we open the scriptures or when we return to the word in prayer. Prayer becomes an encounter with the Lord whose word we are permitted to hear without ceasing. We are personally addressed. We are allowed to respond personally. And in this twofold personal contact, the Word works on man until the true ecclesial man takes shape. With every new encounter, God continues to do this redemptive work on that which the Creator declared good at the beginning and for which the Son offered Himself on the cross, not only until we are brought to completion in ourselves, but until we become useful instruments in God's hands for his work throughout the entire world. God's workshop is his church. In the church, as experienced by priests or laymen, there is much that is unchangeable, and this occasionally goes against our spirit of modernization. If we attempt to see and understand with the eyes of love, then we discover that what is unchangeable in the church comes from the Word, 
and it is beyond time. We come to see that if the distance between the Word and us has grown so great, then it is our fault. The Word's ultimate meaning remains veiled for us because of our sins and our lethargy. Only seldom are we able to see what is eternally valid in the Word. Of course, a perfect hearing and understanding of the Word could almost be compared to the beatific vision. Total understanding, as the fulfillment to the extent possible of our reason by meaning of the Word, is reserved for eternity. Nevertheless, when we encounter God and fix our eyes on the eternal, we understand from the triune God and the mystery of the Church all that is necessary for us to remain in a living faith and to embody in our lives what we have received from the encounter. We are given what is necessary in order to concentrate in our yes to the vitality of today's Church, not only what we need, but also what is needed by our contemporaries for an encounter with God. As we're recording this, we're sitting at Casa Balthazar, which is located in beautiful Rome, Italy, across the street from the church, the Catacombs of St. Agnes. That's correct. As well as very close to many of the other beautiful edifices, churches, sacred holy places that lift up the example of ordinary men and women born into the world, but had an incredible encounter with Christ Jesus. Right. And witnessed not only to him, but to the truth contained in his church. In some cases, dating back almost 1900 years, and some of the names we'll never know. That's right. That were led into the Colosseum and, and faced a world that was very difficult. That movement propelled us to where we are today. That's correct. It does have a message for us yeah. now. And what we will do not only matters for this moment, but for the future, for eternity. Absolutely. I mean, I, as you were speaking, a sort of a, I hope, a not too odd image came into my mind. The church is kind of like an old jalopy that from the outside often looks like it ought to be scrapped, but it wins the race every single time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I think what Adrienne discovered is that in a certain sense, the Catholic church is the only game in town. That sounds like sort of partisanship. My team, the San Francisco Giants, are the greatest team in the world, no matter what. But that's not really what's, what's going on. The point is rather that God became incarnate, and he didn't just stop there. He took our human response to the incarnation seriously. That's part of what it meant for him to become incarnate. He set up certain guarantees. Mary Immaculate, the infallibility of the papacy, and so forth. But he also was magnanimous enough not to be constantly, as it were, looking over our shoulders to make sure that we're being good boys and girls. Rather, he was generous enough to entrust his incarnation to this human response. Again, there were guarantees which will never fail. And yet, the rest of us 
somehow participate in that, somehow participate in the fact that he entrusts himself to Mary or to Peter, and there's a guarantee that that will never fail. Somehow the rest of us are all involved in that. And so there's this, this kind of marvelous mystery that without denying or suppressing or censoring anything, I mean, the church has absolutely no fear of humanity because in a certain sense, the church just is humanity. Receiving Christ with all of the ups and downs and all of the drama that that involves and always in the midst of it, always in the midst of that is the holiness of Mary and the indefectibility of Peter and the connection between those two things. So really what this has to do with is not partisanship, my team is the best. What this has to do with is God's fidelity to the incarnation and therefore to humanity, to the whole human race, to the whole world. That's why we can say outside of the Catholic Church is no salvation. That's not saying, you know, if you don't root for my team, you're a loser. It's not human partisanship. It's simply the point that this is where God's fidelity to humanity, to his incarnation and to the reception of that incarnation is visibly manifest for the sake of the entire world, for the sake of the entirety of humanity. For Adrienne, it became an appreciation of her authentic identity as that child of God, that we then are called to be Christ in the world, in a relationship, in family, that relationship with God. We don't lose ourselves. We actually are authenticated. I think you're touching on another point of affinity between, say, Adrienne and the true Second Vatican Council. Remember the statement that we find uh, in Gaudium et Spes, you know, the Constitution on the Church in the Modern World, paragraph 22, that was so beloved of John Paul II, Christ in revealing the Father and his love reveals man to himself and makes known to him his man's most high calling, meaning not only is there no opposition between the divine and the human, but the more united you to God you are, the more human you are. This has absolutely nothing to do with sort of 1960s-style self-actualization and so forth. The point is rather that we become what we are, what we're meant to be, in God's plan. He wants us to be human. That's why he made us this way. And everybody wants that. Everybody wants to be fully alive. Everybody wants to be happy. Everybody wants to, to understand things, to understand the world. That's what I'm talking about. That's what it means to be fully human. The point that the Second Vatican Council is making and the point that Adrienne is making in her own way and that, as you point out, she experienced in her own way is that the more united to God you are, the more those other things are the case. It's sort of the more supernatural you are, the more natural you, you become. That's what we're being told, I think. And when you sort of put the as it were, the message of the Second Vatican Council in those terms, you realize that most of us have never heard anything like that. Still, after 50 years, most of us don't really know that that's actually what 
the council was about and what sort of this movement that you were talking about a few minutes ago is, is about. We saw a glimpse of it. We see images occasionally in a little woman from Albania who would go to Calcutta. Exactly. Mother Teresa. You instantly know there's something and you hear her talk about love. Have you ever really, really read and really heard what she's saying? Because in a very real way, she says the same thing that Von Spires says. Ab absolutely. Absolutely. We don't a lot of times go into that depth. We see it. We know holiness. We can even look at John Paul. We cry out, yes, he's the same, but it's the same thing. We know it. We just don't know how to articulate it. Somewhere. Yeah, no, no. We definitely have seen it. I, I guess what I mean to say is that we, how shall I put this? We don't really believe in the incarnation. <laughs> we say that we do. And on one level, of course, we do. But in another way, we haven't really grasped it because we don't really believe that the entirety of God, because Christ is 100% God, could be united indissolubly with and be completely present in full humanity, 100% human. And we tend to sort of shortchange the one or the other, you know, we sort of, we, we tend to sort of shortchange God and sort of think or underestimate God and think that he wants to give us less than the whole of himself. We tend to sort of shortchange ourselves in thinking that somehow less than all of us is going to be what's receiving that total gift of God rather than all of us in all of our humanity. And the point is that when you see, when you meet a real saint, John Paul II, Teresa of Calcutta, I would say Adrienne, Padre Pio, and so forth, what you see is precisely not somebody who was really, 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 really good, you know, a sort of super Boy Scout or something like that. Mm -hmm. A really good humanitarian, you know, a Nobel Prize winner, Gandhi or something like that. No, what you see is somebody in whom the, the mystery of the incarnation comes alive again, somebody in whom the whole of God's self-gift, and God wants to give himself, nothing less, mm -hmm. 100%, is received not by 50% of us, and then the rest is sort of sh shunted aside, mm -hmm. or we pretend like it doesn't exist, but with 100% of us. That's what you see in a saint. And that's why, in a way, it's easy to recognize and hard to put into words. Because if it were just a super good guy, it would be obvious in a way. There's something about the Nobel Prize winning humanitarian that, of course, is very admirable. But in another way, it's sort of obvious just between us and how many uh, thousands of people are, are listening is kind of boring. But when you meet a saint immediately you feel that there, that we're in a different ballpark here. And it would be tempting to think that the different ballpark is, well, this is, this is totally supernatural. And in a way that's true because it is totally supernatural, but it's also the complete sort of 100% supernatural divine present in all of the human being in every aspect the Incarnation. Christian sanctity is essentially about the Incarnation. 
and only in the, in second, in the second place about being really, really, really good. It isn't remarkable, and, and maybe what I hear you saying, too, is that it's that that person who we see as the saint allowed themselves to be open for the reception of the grace to be able to make that movement towards God. So they utilize the humility to enter into a relationship by first casting off the other things that they love, the sin. And I'm, I'm leading towards confession. They, yeah. they, there's this desire in their hearts they need to confess. And sure. It was Catherine of Siena was dying on her bed, and she was saying, I am a sinner. Have yeah. mercy on me. Catherine of Siena, who yeah. was considered at 33 to be the spiritual mama of yeah. so many people, and as well as popes who listened to her. And yet there was a humility in that she couldn't be full of enough. Like, exactly. There's a desire. Mother Teresa, same thing. Yeah. And even St. Therese in those yeah. last days, there's the acknowledgement that they will never be as full of grace as maybe that extraordinary mother of us all, the Blessed Mother. Of course, exactly. And of course, I don't mean that Padre Pio or even St. Francis is on the mm -hmm. same level as the Blessed Mother or Christ. But I think you're, you're leading us in a, in a really uh, helpful direction here because the thing that immediately springs to mind when you talk about Catherine of Siena or these other saints is how awake they are. In other words, when Catherine of Siena says, I'm a sinner, she's not just sort of reading off of a script. This is what a saint is supposed to do, right? A saint is supposed to know that they're sinful. And so this is what a saint is supposed to say. There's no supposed to here. That's the point that I'm trying to make. The point is not this is what's supposed to be said or this is how things are supposed to be. This is what is. And these people are awake to what is, right? So the gravity of sin but also what it means to be a creature. Remember, St. Catherine would say, uh, you know, what, what am I? And God would say, in a certain sense, you're nothing. Not you're a piece of junk in that sense, but your existence is the fruit of my generosity, of my love, for example. The point being to be utterly awake. And again, I think Adrienne... You know, we've talked about that in previous episodes, her sobriety, right, her objectivity, her competence, her smarts were in one way a reflection of her own personal genius. I think I've mentioned that. Balthazar said at one point that she, along with one other person, were the two most sort of amazing human beings that he'd ever met. And at the same time, it was the fruit of holiness, you know, that she was awake, that she was alive, and she didn't just sort of let things wash over her. She was attentive to the meaning of things. So she would always say, we have to do justice to things. Again, and you see the, the unity there, that's a utterly human attitude in the sense of a truly humane, a truly cultured person. 
somebody who, as a human being, is intelligent and awake, wants to do justice to things. But that's also the attitude of somebody who knows that all things are creatures of God, all things are gifts, and we want to receive those gifts and do justice to them. So a unity of sort of faith and reason, nature and grace, and so forth. And this applies to everything. I mean, to do justice to money, the way that you handle money, to do justice to your body, the way that you dress, the way that you think about sexuality, that's a whole other topic. What the teaching of the church about sexuality means, that's a whole other topic. The way that you think about politics, and so on and so forth. Doing justice to things as part of what it means to be a saint, that is, somebody who receives the whole of God in the whole of their humanity, so that God is shown at his most generous, as it were, and man is shown at his best. That's what I mean by being fully human, man at his best. It's being in the moment wherever he places you. Yes. And allowing him to shine by doing whatever he tells you. Exactly. We'll continue our conversation with Dr. Walker in our next episode. You've been listening to A Handmaid of the Lord, The Life and Legacy of Adrienne von Speyer with Dr. Adrian Walker. To obtain the works of Adrienne von Speyer, go to Ignatius.com, the website for her publisher, Ignatius Press, or you can find them at any fine Catholic bookstore. To hear and or to download this episode, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit DiscerningHearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for A Handmaid of the Lord, The Life and Legacy of Adrian von Speyer with Dr. Adrian Walker.